Welcome to Micro Digressions. This is Spencer Case, and I'm here today with Charles C.W. Crook. How are you doing, Charlie? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. You're a senior uh, writer at National Review. Is that right? That's that's right. That's right. For my sins. And what does the, the CW stand for? I've been curious about that. It stands for Christopher William, although I have been asked by people who've come to speeches or debates I've been involved with whether it stands for concealed weapon, given my Second Amendment stance, which would be quite cool. Right, right. So we're recording now in uh, the middle of June. I don't plan on releasing this until around the 4th of July. This is going to be the 4th of July episode. I do want to remind listeners that my co-authored book, Is Morality Real? A Debate with Matt Lutz, is going to be available for purchase September 7th. And, you know, as we've said before, we're both very excited for the appearance of this book. We've worked very hard on it for the last two and a half years. And uh, if you have any interest in this kind of topic, please check it out. So... Charlie, I wanted to talk to you about um, patriotism, and I was struck by how on your Twitter byline you say uh, "American by choice." I think that used to be the first thing that you said about yourself, and now it's like it's like the third or something. But uh, you choose to you say this, and then it's like one of the, the first few things you say about yourself. So I'm I'm curious: uh, one, why are you an American by choice? And why do you think that's an important thing to say about yourself? Well, I'll start with the second part. I think it's important because I think that people who choose to move to another country have a different set of obligations than people who are born in a given country. The analogy that I tend to draw is with the British royal family. I have, by way of example, very little time for Meghan Markle because she knew that she was marrying into an institution that had certain characteristics. I have a great deal more time for Prince Charles. If Prince Charles doesn't like the royal family, now King Charles... Well, I have some sympathy for him. He was born into that. He woke up one morning and he was in it. He was the heir to the throne. He didn't ask for it. Meghan Markle didn't. The same is true of being an American. I profoundly disagree with people who are born here and think the country is terrible for whatever reason. But if they were born here through no agency of their own, and they just don't like it, they don't like the culture or the religious norms or the constitution or the weather, well, I can see that. But I think if you choose to come here, if you make the sacrifices, and they are sacrifices that are necessary to move country, I think you occupy a different space within the polity and... When I say American by choice, I am signaling a certain intentionality. I didn't have to move here. I did not flee war-torn Somalia 
And I wasn't born here. I made a conscious choice to become an American. I think that matters for better or for worse. Now, your first question uh, was, was what it is to be an American. This plays into why it matters if you choose to move to the United States. Because from my perspective, the United States has at its heart an idea, quite literally a declaration. And the status quo is enforced. When you become an American citizen you are asked all manner of questions as a prerequisite. You are asked to swear allegiance to the Constitution. You are shown videos that lionize the Declaration and American history. You undergo an interview process that makes it clear what America is and what it stands for. You are asked what you are not. I can't count the number of times in the immigration process that I was asked whether or not I was a communist, whether I'd been a member of the Nazi party, whether I intended to restrict anyone's religious liberty, and so on and so forth. And I think if you go through that process and you are dishonest about your intentions, if you put up your hand and you swear allegiance to a constitution you don't believe in, then you should feel very deeply ashamed. And I don't think that's quite the same in any other place. It's not that America is entirely unique. Every country has a certain ethos. But it is easier to become an American than it is to become of another place. And I speak French. I've spent a lot of time in France. If I moved to France and I said, I am French, people would look at me askew. If, like a million other of my fellow countrymen of birth, I had moved to Spain. It would never have occurred to me to say I'm now Spanish, even if technically I were. If I moved to Japan, I wouldn't say I'm Japanese. But America, that's not something that people think is weird. And in fact, they encourage it very deeply. So I think American by choice has a resonance that it wouldn't in any other context. Yeah, I mean, if you immigrated to Japan, not only um, would you not think of yourself as Japanese, they would not accept you as Japanese. Right. right. I mean, you can stay there for decades and they'll still think of you as basically a guest worker. I, I think that's exactly right. And yet a Japanese person who moves to America within a few years will be treated as if they had been born here, as if they are no different than anyone else. I remember... Several years ago, in the aftermath of the Paris bombings, Vice News had a sort of feature about the cultural background in which this has ha had happened. And they interviewed a left-wing, apparently left-wing parliamentarian who was extremely dismissive of the idea that Islam or immigration or something had, had anything to do with this terrorism problem. And he said, look, the people who carried out these attacks, they're all French because they had French citizenship. He's like, they were French people. And I thought, 
Yeah, I, I don't think they thought of themselves that way. And I don't think other French people would think of them as that way. And it leads me to, I think it highlights something, which is that maybe this is one of the really important ideological dividing lines between the right and the left, if you think those are those are serious categories. But it, it's certainly some kind of interesting dividing line. Those who see national identities as being substantive things that are acquired versus those who see them as being purely nominal. You know, as soon as you get the paperwork done, you are you are an American or you are French or, or whatever, wherever you're immigrating. Whereas we we used to have this term Americanization that I haven't heard. I remember reading that in like high school textbooks about Ellis Island and stuff, but you don't typically hear that word anymore, do you? No, you don't. Let me give you an example, though, of why I think it's important. And this is not ideological in character at all. But it does, in my estimation, say something about the American approach. I cannot prove this to you. But I have spoken, including on my own podcast, to fellow British immigrants who have told me that they have had the same experience I did. And that experience was that when we first moved to the United States, for maybe the first year, people who chatted with us would ask, where are you visiting from? Or are you on vacation? But after a year, for whatever reason, the question changed to where do you live? When did you move here? Where are you from originally? Do I detect an accent? And there is obviously something over that period of time in our affect that changed. Maybe it's clothes. You know, maybe I had a New York Yankees t-shirt on or maybe it was the way I walked or the way I ordered a sandwich or whatever. But it didn't take very long. And I think that matters because... Again, I can't prove it, but I have also spoken to people who have spent a great deal of time in Japan. You know, my wife's from Hong Kong, and they say that it doesn't shift. <laughs> you just never get the question, where do you live, uh, as if you are Japanese or uh, Chinese or German or Spanish or whatever. But Americans are primed for it. They're just built to see people change in their gait and their clothing and their vocabulary and their instinct. And you know, I think that's a very beautiful thing. Certainly, I've been appreciative of it as an immigrant. What do you think of this idea of being a hyphenated American? So Teddy Roosevelt famously said there should be no hyphenated Americans. And I, I see what he was getting at with that, right? We don't want these more parochial identities to uh, fragment us or something. But I think I disagree with that bottom line, right? I think that I don't want national identity to be so so much of a solvent that we, we lack individual distinctness. I mean, we're, everybody is going to be, who is an American is going to be something in addition to being an American, at the same time, I would think, right? It's not going to be the only identity category that, that matters to, to anyone, probably. And so I wonder, do you think of yourself as being like a a British American? Or or would you just say 
American full stop. I think it depends what you mean. I think there's a place for both. The objection I have to Teddy Roosevelt is it was too prescriptive. I think that if you are talking about a an attitude towards citizenship and equality, I like the idea that everyone is just an American. I don't like the slicing and dicing of people into groups, especially as it manifests with our current obsession with race. I don't see African Americans and Asian Americans and Hispanic Americans as any different from myself. And in fact, one of the things I love about America, and of course it hasn't lived up to this at many points, but in theory at least, in intention at least, is that everyone is an American and we're all equal that the law sees us in the same way, that we're expected to treat each other in the same way. So in that respect, I really like the idea that we're all just Americans and it doesn't matter where you're from. Of course, you don't want people to subordinate truth to an idea overzealously enforced. And although I would never in a million years call myself British American because I don't like the hyphen, I am. I exhibit characteristics of foreignness. And listen to my accent. It hasn't really changed. I like cricket still. I am sometimes overly polite. A silly example Americans will say, on Tuesday, we're all going to go fishing at about three o'clock. And because there's no explicit invitation, <laughs> until I am explicitly invited, I'll say, oh, that's, that's interesting. That's nice for you. You know, that is, that is upbringing. That's real. I don't know if that will ever leave me. So I, I really think it depends on the context. Certainly in the law and in our politics and in our collective self-conception. I think that this atomization has been a disaster, and I would love to see it exploded. But yeah, let's not pretend. Of, of course we're different. Of course we all come from different places and have different experiences. And I, I wouldn't want to see us end up with what I think is the worst of both worlds. You mentioned the French, I mean, the French really exist in this strange paradox where you have this total lack of acceptance of people from non-French native places. But at the same time, the government is so emphatic about it that they don't even keep statistics on race or national origin under the pretense, I would say, that, that, that everyone is exactly the same and that that doesn't matter. Well, it, it can so I saw a poll on Twitter the other day. I don't remember who it was who was asking the question, but I thought it was a very interesting question. But the question was something like, what do you think is most deeply important about someone's identity? The things that are chosen or the things that are not chosen? And I could see a case for, for either, right? Like I didn't choose who my family members were, um, you know, but that seems pretty fundamental to who I am. Um, but I also can see a case for somebody saying, no, it's the uh, markers of identity that I myself choose that are really the most important ones. 
And it sounds like as far as nationality goes, you're kind of leaning in that direction. Yeah, that's a fascinating question. That is a, a really, really difficult thing to delineate because obviously part of what you believe is based upon the things you don't choose, your family, your upbringing, your surroundings, the time in which you live. I mean, I, I think one of the great things about America is that it does give you the option to buy in to a creed. And that certainly for me, and I think for many immigrants, is a choice. And I live this. When I go back to England, which I am from, that was a non-choice. And I hang out with my family, again, a non-choice. And my friends are let's say a half choice. I I did choose my friends, but I also didn't have carte blanche in that. Many of the things that I believe or that I have signed up for living in America, they are baffled by. And that illustrates to me that I have made an active choice. But maybe others wouldn't have made that choice if they had had different family, friends and an upbringing. I, I, I suppose this is an extension of the nature-nurture argument, and, and I have always come down on, on both. But, you know, one of the nice things about America, as I say, is that there is that escape valve. And I'd, I'd, I don't know enough about this particular period to, to speak eloquently or intelligently about it, but, you know, th there are various points in history at which you really did not have the chance of self-actualization or to pick another country or to elect to adhere to a different creed. I mean, you, what you had, you had. Where you were from, you were from. Who you were surrounded by, you were surrounded by. Your religion was your religion and the rules were the rules. And I find it extremely moving that almost every country in the world has a whole bunch of people in it who either personally or their family members saw others stream away to a different place purely because they, they believed in it. And, and that's really what America represents to, to me is that escape valve. But yeah, it, there's a huge amount of every person that is, that is the product of elements they had no control over. So you've mentioned a couple of times the idea of an American creed, and I have to say I'm somewhat resistant to this idea, the idea of the American identity fundamentally being about belief, right? So, for example, like my, my membership with my family, not only, not only my, my family that I was born into, but like with my wife and child, maybe I'm just an, an odd case, but we, in, in this case, like we, we have a lot of different beliefs. Th this membership is not about signing on to a set of beliefs and it would be a more tenuous kind of relationship if, if it were predicated on you have to believe a certain thing to be family member, right? When I hear some kinds of conservatives talking about an American creed, like, well, I can sort of get it. I, I can get why we wouldn't want communists to immigrate here. And I would even support restrictions to keep people with certain beliefs out. But I don't feel as though my 
identity as an American is fundamentally about sharing a philosophy with the rest of my fellow countrymen, partly because my philosophy is so idiosyncratic, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have any fellow countrymen if, if that were the criterion. Yes, but I'm not suggesting that you have to have a particular set of views to be an American. I'm suggesting that a smaller liberal framework, for example, is a prerequisite. I mean, I, I suppose the question I would ask is, do you think that there is such a thing as an un-American idea? Because if there is, then you have a, a creed. I, I think that there are obviously national characteristics, you could say un-British, un-French, but you could ask almost anyone in the world what it means to be an American, and I think you would get a broadly similar answer. That doesn't mean that you have to have the exact set of political precepts that other people would. You can have in the same country an Elizabeth Warren and a and a Chip Roy, but there is such a thing as an un-American approach to religious pluralism, for example, or an un-American approach to free speech, or an un-American approach to um, elections. And, and I think in the modern era, you could say an un-American approach to race. Do you, do you agree with that or disagree? Well, it's interesting. I guess I think that when I say something is un-American, I'm doing something more than than describing it, right? It's partly a normative thing. I'm recommending a certain course of action. Like if I say discriminating based on race is un-American, that is reflective of some of my ideals of what I would like the U.S. to to be. Mm -hmm. But as a matter of descriptive fact, race discrimination has been the norm throughout this country's history, including today. And I think it will unfortunately, probably continue, uh, regardless of what the Supreme Court does with this, you know, Harvard admissions case. Although, uh, I hope they do the right thing and rebuke Harvard. The uh, To call something un-American is an interesting kind of, you know, linguistic statement. I, I don't want to say that it's purely emotive, like you could say that communism is un-American in like a descriptive sense. Like it's just completely at odds with what the U.S. has always been. But I think describing things as un-American generally, there's like a normative aspect to it. And so I don't know that it's just a matter, it's indicative of there being a. Well, I think that creed is very old and I would agree entirely that it has very often been ignored. But I think that you could at, almost any point in post-revolutionary American history use the phrase un-American and be on solid ground. Not in all circumstances, but the Declaration says all men are created equal. That is a declarative statement. It talks about the consent of the governed. It makes the case for sedition and revolution. The Constitution, which is different, of course, then includes various provisions that were broadly agreed upon, and that Constitution is amended in the 19th century after a bloody civil war. So when we say America frowns upon 
racial discrimination, you're absolutely right to note that as a practical matter, that has not always been true. And in at the margins now, it is also not true. But the idea of there being a tension between politics as it is practiced and the ideals that we either subscribed to or are obliged to follow under the law is a really American thing. I mean, you could say, as they did in 1790 in Philadelphia and in Boston in their anti-slavery societies, slavery is un-American. If you look at the the ratification of the Declaration of Independence, it yields this explosion in anti-slavery societies that are full of people, mostly white, but some black, saying, slavery is un-American. Why? Well, because we just passed through the Continental Congress this affirmation that all men are created equal. The same is true between the Revolution and the Civil War. The abolitionists are pointing to the documents, are pointing to accepted and adopted principles and saying we are living at odds with these. And then after the Civil War, we have the same thing in the South, where those who oppose segregation are saying we passed the 14th Amendment. You can't do this. You mustn't do this. And that is appealed to by Martin Luther King and what he calls his promissory note in the 1960s. I struggle to find an equivalent historical example in Britain. I think the reason that the British were a good people historically were because they had become accustomed to useful and efficacious modes of living. They had a tried and tested approach that was based in many ways on compromise and accident. But it's very rare in England, even now, that someone says, this is un-British. You are living according to a set of principles that we have collectively disavowed. So I, 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 do, I do think in a very real sense there is something in the American system that allows those who dissent, when they're correct, of course, to say, look, that's not what we, what we promised. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Yeah, it does make sense. And, uh, you know, I guess one big difference between British and American political culture is that, you know, you've got the written constitution and the written declaration of independence. Do you think that's functioning here to make a difference between how we see Americanness versus Britishness there? You you have these written documents that you can, you can point to, of course, you know, there are other things in British history, you know, with the, the, the bill of rights from, from the glorious revolution and Magna Carta and all of that, but there, there's nothing quite equivalent as far as this encapsulates the whole idea yes. of what we're about. I mean, it's exactly correct. And it's correct for a couple of reasons. One is structural. The English Bill of Rights, 1689, 
was an act of parliament, therefore could be amended by an act of parliament by a simple majority, by a transient mob, if you like. The 1689 Bill of Rights contains the right to keep and bear arms, but it didn't matter. Once those who wished to abridge the right to keep and bear arms got into power, they just changed the law. It was the same mechanism that had led to the protection and then the abrogation. But in the American system, the Constitution sits above the political system. There is such a thing as unconstitutionality in America, where a court or even a private citizen can appeal and say, look, you're not allowed to do that, Congress. And after the 14th Amendment, you're not allowed to do that, state, because we have this set of rules that exist above. But I think it's deeper than that. That's the structural legal setup, and that is extremely important. But it's deeper than that. There is a belief in immutability, for better or for worse, in the United States that just doesn't exist in most other countries. It's almost scriptural. It's funny that there are 10 provisions within the Bill of Rights and there are 10 commandments. Actually, there were supposed to be 12 items within the Bill of Rights. Two of them were voted down. Americans see the Declaration and they see the Constitution as being almost wholly writ. I know some people loathe that, and some people, myself included, think that that is imperative. But irrespective of your perception of its value, it is there. And it naturally informs the national character. So there's this uh, sort of traditional view that the Declaration of, of Independence represents a sort of um, distillation of fundamental national principles, the national creed, as it were. And the uh, Constitution is just is meant to safeguard what's in the Declaration. So in Lincoln's way of putting it, you've got the Constitution is the frame of silver framing the apple of gold, which is the Declaration. That is the, the sacred core. And really, he's talking about just the first part of it, I think the introductory paragraphs of the Declaration of Independence. Do you think that's right? And is, is that your view? Yes and no. The Declaration is far more sweeping. And by definition, the Declaration also includes an admission that you could never make in a constitution. Constitutions are there to establish and lay out the rules for governments, whereas the Declaration of Independence admits that if the conditions are right, it's the obligation of free people to overthrow those governments. You could never write that into a constitution. The constitution is also the product of compromises that were far more prosaic in nature than those that were made within the rhetoric of the Declaration of Independence. And this has important consequences because if you are, as I am, an originalist, then you wish the Supreme Court to interpret the Constitution and only the Constitution as it was written and understood at the time. And that means that while the Declaration of Independence can breathe life into the Constitution, it should not be used as a substitute for it. What I would not want to see happen, to borrow from Lincoln, is the usual order of silver and gold being imported into the law. 
I want the silver, the Constitution, to be the foundational text for the Supreme Court. I don't want the Declaration to be, because the Declaration of Independence is not law. Conceptually, though, yes, I think the Constitution is there to try to flesh out the principles within the Declaration. Now, of course, in many ways it failed, most notably with slavery, at least until it was amended. The Constitution is a much more practical document. The Constitution was written outside of warfare and anger and romantic flights of fancy. It's a remarkable document, nevertheless. I am strongly of the view that any attempt to draft a constitution now would be a disaster. The document would end up 15,000 provisions long. It would have all sorts of detail in it that wouldn't befit a constitution. So I think the fact that these two documents were written and ratified within 15 years of each other and are of the quality that they are is nothing short of a miracle. But I would stop short of lionizing the Declaration within the constitutional context because occasionally that can lead to extra-legal interpretations that really cause problems for a democracy. I want to talk about the Declaration a bit more. One thing that I think is really interesting about the American Revolution is that there were tensions within it. There was a more conservative wing of the revolution that throughout saw themselves as really asserting their rights as Englishmen against the innovations of the king and the parliament of England. So the, uh, there were a lot of patriots who saw the revolution in a fundamentally conservative way. And then, uh, so I guess I, I would think of John Adams as, as being on that pole of the revolution. And then on the other side, you've got Thomas Paine, uh, where this was, he had a much more rationalistic and sweeping set of political ideas. And he, you know, so he, you have in the declaration kind of a marriage of these two poles of the American Revolution. So the more conservative side you see most in the list of grievances toward the king, but the, uh, and then you have the rationalistic side of it, the Thomas Paine side of it up at the top. And so from what I've read, the reason that that Thomas Jefferson's like original wording was able to get through the committee with only like the, the changes suggested by Benjamin Franklin, which was from, from sacred and deniable to self-evident right at the beginning, was that everybody was focused on getting the grievances against the king right. That was like the legally actionable part of this document. And they sort of saw it as the beginning of it is just kind of a rhetorical flourish. And and then that, that has now changed and it's become this sort of spiritual document where more emphasis is given to the first part of it that represented the more radical side of the revolution. Yeah, I think that's right. And if you look back at what you described as the more conservative elements, they were more numerous than the radicals. Now, I think it's a wonderful thing that quite quickly 
the precepts outlined in the introduction to the Declaration were picked up. As I say, you have this explosion, explosions that were reflected in law of anti-slavery societies and of those who were seeking genuine equality under the law. But if you go back to the two or three years prior to the revolution and the passage of the Declaration of Independence, you will find that the vast majority of the missives that are sent to England from the colonies are friendly, are conservative, and are in a sense pleading, as you noted, for the restoration of what they consider to be the birthright of all Englishmen. There's very little radicalism. Now, of course, some of that's rhetorical. Some of that was the product of a political culture that did not countenance revolution until it was quite late on in the proceedings. But it was also the product of a colonial culture that cherished the British way of life and considered itself heir to it. The the last thing that every voyage that left from Britain to the New World did uh, was pledge allegiance to the British constitutional order. And the first thing they did when they arrived in the New World was to incorporate all of common law into their systems and to replicate as much as possible of the British system, including the Glorious Revolution. And there is no great sense in 1774, 1775 that that system needs to be overturned. They just want it to be maintained within the colonies. And when they come to believe that it can't be or won't be, that's when they become revolutionaries. You're absolutely right. The conservative element was dominant. There was an undercurrent of radicalism. I think some of that radicalism made its way into the Constitution, and I'm grateful for it. It also manifested itself in some ways that would have been deeply alarming to the vast majority of American colonists. For example, Thomas Jefferson praises the French Revolution. The British were under the cosh against the French. Napoleon, had he been able to, would have invaded in the late 18th century. The vast majority of colonists did not consider themselves to have any kinship with the French whatsoever, let alone with a French regime that intended to make history anew. So the Jefferson Payne wing was peculiar uh, numerically within that uh, within that generation. But it also had a great deal to recommend it, and once the revolution had been won, some of those ideas caught on. And I'm, as I said, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for that. I have a hard time defending Jefferson in some of his statements about the French Revolution. And... The fact that it went off the rails so terribly 
I think, is a good indication of what happens when you have radicalism that isn't tempered by this kind of conservative element sort of as an, as an anchor, as it were. Some of the stuff that the Sons of Liberty did, though, were pretty, pretty radical. I mean, they tarred and feathered British customs officials and people who, as they saw it, were just sort of doing their job. And I have to say, I have some sympathy for the royalists. You know, this is one of the few wars where I feel like I can see both sides and I can sympathize with people on both sides. I think with war, it's usually pretty cut and dry. There's one obvious aggressor, or maybe no one should be fighting over a war that's not where there's not sufficient cause for anyone. But this is one where I understand where the British were coming from. And I can understand the kind of position that King George III was in. I think that, you know, he wasn't a monster. And he was patriotic. He was trying to do right by his country. And he made some bad mistakes, but he was ill-advised. And the colonists did some things that made it very difficult for someone on the other side of the Atlantic to appreciate where, where they were coming from or to empathize with them. Yeah, the point you make about George III is key. If we were to compare George III to what we now regard as a tyrant, having seen what happened in the 20th century, having examined, forget Napoleon, but Hitler or Stalin or Mao, Pol Pot, the idea is laughable. I think the fact that the Americans revolted anyway is admirable in its own way, but I'm with you on that. That said... The revolution was an odd occurrence in that the British were so liberal that they found it hard to take their own side. By the second or third year of the war, support in the country for the war against the colonists is weak. Support in the parliament is weak. You have... One in three British parliamentarians saying we ought to stop fighting these colonists. They are British themselves. The government of Lord North suffered immensely from its decision to prosecute the war. The leader of the Whigs, Charles James Fox, wore George Washington's colors into the House of Commons. Macaulay was famously squishy on the question of uh, the war because he, although he thought that empire could be civilizing, also believed that when those you had dominated wanted you out, you ought to acquiesce. The Americans were more free than the British in some regards. Burke described the system of, of empire as salutary neglect. The point I'm making is this was not a tyranny. <laughs> this was just not equivalent to a tyranny in any way that we understand it now. I don't know if I quite agree with you 
when you say that you have some sympathy for the king. I am soft on the king and the British because I don't think that they were tyrants. I also think that the measures that they adopted would have been recognized by any freeborn Englishman of the era as repressive and unacceptable. So if the question is, did the British have a right to tax the Americans for their own defense, for example, uh, as the result of the French and Indian Wars? Yes. But the Declaratory Act, the Stamp Act, the reading of the Riot Act, you you would have seen revolts against those measures if they had occurred on British soil. If they had occurred in London or Manchester or Liverpool, you would have seen a similar reaction. And that's where I think that although the stakes were much lower than they would have been in the Warsaw Ghetto, I I do think the colonists were were right. No, I, I agree that that was repressive, their actions there. But it was also, it seems clear that they were acting with a certain amount of ignorance. They didn't really understand that the colonists had different political institutions, like their their more local institutions had developed a, a different kind of culture there over the last 150 years. And well after declaration, the, the, the Declaration of Independence, even, they still did not quite understand the depth of the colonists' yeah. sort of feelings on this. Yeah. Nor did they understand that the sincerity of the colonists prior to 1776, when they said that we really want restoration of the empire under conditions where we would be treated in a, in a just manner, like the way the, the olive branch petition was, was rejected. A lot of the colonists felt like, well, we've been kicked out. We've been kicked out of the Commonwealth and declaring independence is, is just making official what the king and parliament effectively have already done. But I don't think that the British knew the political situation very well. And it's understandable that they wouldn't have. I mean, it took news quite a while to travel across the Atlantic and, you know, the king had never been there. And it's hard to see how they would have been able to appreciate the political situation. So that too inclines me toward lenience certainly lenience Uh, i i think it's basically impossible to maintain an empire over time so even if the model in what became the united states had been that of canada you would eventually have got independence the british empire even in those nations that adopted hook, line, and sinker British ideals and were full of ethnic British people, Canada, New Zealand, Australia. Over time, those people said, well, hold on a moment. We're a very long way away. Why on earth are we being ruled from London? You can make that even more acutely true if you look at India, Pakistan. Sri Lanka, Bangladesh. So 
in a sense, that lets the British off the hook, doesn't it? That this is a natural progression and that even the most benign imperial outlook, which I think would describe the British approach to Canada, is going to fail. I come down eventually, though, in the camp that this makes what the colonists did more, not less, impressive. I don't mean that they were braver or that their cause was more just. But if you have to explain, in terms of abstract principle, why it is that you are fighting a government that you largely like when you are relatively wealthy and free and happy, then there's something to be said for you. No one had to explain during the Great Terror or during World War II why it was that they were fighting. They were pushed into a corner and their predicament was appalling. But when you have to articulate in some of the most eloquent prose ever written why it is that you demand freedom, I, I think that's worth listening to. And, and I find this a very beautiful part of the American story that essentially this group of people had a... Uh, potentially deleterious and suicidal revolution over abstract principles of representation and individual liberty and self-determination. And I see people downplay this, especially on the left. I see this tendency toward diminishing the American Revolution compared to others. And I just don't understand that. I think it is important to stand on principle, and I'm pleased the founders did it. Howard Zinn, for example, is completely dismissive yes. of this. And he says something sarcastic to the effect of like, the, the real American revolution is, is, you know, convincing people that there was something at stake and when, when it was really just, you know, the elites making this power grab, you know, for themselves. And there's something to the idea that they had material interests here uh, with the British economic control of the colonies, but it is also true that they were risking their lives. Like they had real skin in the game. What Franklin said that, you know, we better hang together or we'll all hang separately. It was definitely true. I just think Housen is wrong. It's not that the architects of the revolution weren't broadly wealthy and rich and powerful and so forth. They were. And it's not that there weren't a huge number of hypocrites among their ranks. There were. Those people and their descendants continued to be hypocrites for a long, long time. But they believed it. I mean, the rank-and-file revolutionaries, those who made these decisions, those who assembled to write the Declaration and then the Constitution, those who led the Continental Army, they believed what they were selling. This was not some you know, Marxist false consciousness. They really believed what they were doing was right. And in some cases, they believed it and were wrong. You know, this idea you read in letters from the pre- and post-revolutionary period of time immemorial 
uh, of the, the the British legacy that predated uh, the recording of history, or even of, of Magna Carta, is actually often factually wrong. The American lionization of Magna Carta imputes that document with all sorts of ideas that it does not contain. Funnily enough, if Howard Zinn had ever made this point, he'd have been correct. The, the tenets of Magna Carta are not democratic. They are really the product of a dispute between the monarchy and the aristocracy. That's not how it's seen in revolutionary America. It becomes this totem. But that, to me, is less important than that the people who led that fight believed it to be true. And I just find Howard Zinn utterly cynical on this. He seems to think that the, the American revolutionaries had been hoodwinked by, you know, John Rockefeller or (laughs) by the the robber barons. And it's just not true. Yeah, I agree with you about the cynicism there. I want to go back to the declaration. So I don't know if you're familiar with the conservative criticism of the declaration that, for instance, Yoram Hazoni is making where he says the declaration is too rationalistic. It's, it's kind of utopian. It's, it's based on these abstract principles disconnected with tradition. And it's absurd to say that this is self-evident, or it would have been evident to people a long time ago. So he is of the opinion that we should see this as rhetoric and of a suspicious kind, of the kind that led to the French Revolution. I don't know if he would say exactly that, but he sees in the beginning of the Declaration the excesses of the Payne Jefferson poll of American thinking about the Revolution. I kind of want to say the sense in which all people, we'd all be created equal as we're all equal before God. And that makes sense in the time, but what does it mean in a post-Christian America? And I know we're not post-Christian yet, but it seems like we're trending in that direction. And I know I'm not religious. I know you're not religious either. It seems like everyone is created equal. The secular reading of that is empirical sameness. And what comes with that are a bunch of you know obnoxious egalitarian projects that, that we both reject. What, what would you say to those criticisms? Well, I'll take the first one first. I've never really understood the criticism you outlined for a couple of reasons. One is that it says we hold these truths to be self-evident. And the we refers to those who signed the declaration. It doesn't say the whole world does. In fact, the document, if it had been self-evident, would have been unnecessary because it's intended to draw a distinction between those who signed it and those for whom they were speaking and the British Empire and presumably the rest of the world, which the founders regarded as being less enlightened, not more, than the British. Also, precepts change over time. I think it is more self-evident now uh, that all men are created equal than it was 
then, and I don't think that beforehand it was less understood, in any way diminishes the claim. On your second point, I certainly worry about changes in our intellectual and ideological framework that will recast those words. I don't know, and I mean that genuinely, uh, genuinely, I, I, I don't know to what extent that would be the product of a, a post-Christian moral framework. But I do think that our conception of equality is changing in a way that I don't like. And maybe that's the product of success. Maybe that's because we have, in a way that would have been unthinkable in 1776, and frankly unthinkable in 1966, created a system in which people are equal under the law. Maybe now zealotry has taken hold and, and we we want more. But you know, I, do, I don't know, and perhaps he isn't, but I don't know why uh, Yoram Hazoni would blame the Declaration for that, because the context in which that was written and the meaning of those words is pretty clear. If people today are over-reading what Thomas Jefferson wrote in 1776, then that is on them. You see this all the time with the interpretations of historical texts. I write a great deal about the Second Amendment, the phrase well-regulated just did not mean in 1789 what it means now. Well-regulated is a phrase you, you'll find in Jane Austen. Mr. Darcy's temper is deemed to be well-regulated. Well, of course, that doesn't mean the government is in charge of it. Whose fault is it if they read that and draw the wrong conclusion? Is it James Madison's for writing those words or... Is it the reader? So I worry a great deal, as I think you're implying you do, about shifts in our framework that don't intersect properly with our foundational texts. But I wouldn't blame the texts or liberalism or the founders for that. Well, I think Hazoni's complaint isn't about interpretation, but just that it was an a priori, moral principle that isn't based in any kind of tradition, he, he finds that suspicious and thinks not truly conservative. Well, what is conservative? I mean, this is the, a foundational question and one we probably don't have time to explore. But, you know, every revolutionary is a conservative the day after the revolution. But that doesn't mean that the ideas that they had put into the bloodstream weren't radical. I mean, Jane Audlinger points this out, that it became quite confusing in the 1980s reading accounts of the Cold War because we were told that Ronald Reagan was a conservative, but also that Brezhnev was. Well, yeah, actually, <laughs> Reagan was conservative of the American tradition and Brezhnev was conservative of the Soviet tradition that he had been tasked with upholding. No one's a conservative simplicator. You're always a conservative with respect to something that you judge to be valuable and worth conserving. Right. So I think Hazoni is right if he suggests that the Declaration of Independence was not a conservative document. It was a 
revolutionary document. But by the time you get to Lincoln describing the Declaration of Independence, he sounds about as conservative as you can get. And if you fast forward another 80 years after that, you get to Calvin Coolidge talking about the Declaration. Well, he thinks that it is the sole document that explains America and that its ideas are either true or false and are almost biblical in nature. So, you know, th that, that quite quickly descends into this sort of semantic game. And I'm not, I'm not dismissing it. I'm just saying it becomes quite hard to determine what is conservative and what's not. So if you're not a Christian and you reject the sort of um, empirical, woke reading of all men, meaning all people are created equal, is the correct way to read that is something like uh, moral persons have equal rights or something like that? Yeah, and also a more practical observation that you cannot tell a great deal of import about someone based on his immutable characteristics. That there's no categorical conclusions that you can draw that should have an effect on his treatment under the law or as the citizen of a free country. That's how I would read it. That isn't to say that privately people can't have whatever views they like, but the people who wrote that document were making a political statement. They were talking about a nation, uh, embryonic nation, and how its residents should be treated. And I, I think it is absolutely reasonable and objectively correct to suggest that you do not want irrational categories drawn uh, within a free country. And I, I say irrational categories just because obviously you can draw rational categories. We distinguish between adults and minors and we... we judge people based on their actions, if they're murderers or if they're crazy or what you will. But we shouldn't, and I hope have learned not to make sweeping generalizations on the basis of people's unchosen traits. I worry if that reading maybe makes it tautological, though, because, for instance, distinguishing between men and women, I, I think being a man or being a woman is an immutable characteristic. And I think distinctions between those categories, including embedded in law and culture, are often rational. So if what that if our principle is just you shouldn't make irrational generalizations between groups of people. Well, sure, that's true, but it doesn't seem as substantive as I would want for something given that kind of pride of place. Well, we ought to tease that out. If you go back to the founding, you'll find that women were treated equally under the law. Now, what women could not do is vote, but voting was not seen as a right. So there was no abrogation of the right to vote. In every other respect, women were treated as human beings and they 
you, you could not murder a woman, for example. Um, women could uh, represent themselves. So, I mean, it, yeah, it, it, I don't know if it's tautological. It, it does get quite difficult because we wouldn't accept this today and these exemptions so I'm describing sound huge rather than minor property um, divorce uh, the right to vote but I mean yeah I guess it does depend quite heavily on what you what you think of as rational and irrational well I think for example maybe restricting women's entry into the most elite armed forces mm -hmm. is rational in the same way. Yeah. If you're over 50, you can't join the Navy SEAL is rational. Those are generalizations based on immutable characteristics that are rational. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. But the claim I think is much more elementary than that and needed to be in a time of, slavery and in a time where distinctions were drawn between british people who lived in britain and the colonists and you know i think what jefferson is saying is no we're all to be treated the same under the law and th this is this is a really difficult area and i think your objection is reasonable because if you if you look back to the gay marriage debate, so one of the things that, and I, I've been fine with gay marriage for a very long time, but one of the things that I always thought was unfairly dismissed by the advocates of gay marriage was the idea that actually there's no equal protection case for gay marriage because everyone is able to marry someone of the opposite sex. In other words, the distinction that was being drawn between heterosexual marriage and marriage between any dyad was the core of the debate, not whether or not Americans were being treated equally under the law. It was rational to draw the distinction that only men and women could marry one another, even if you don't like that rational distinction. I think where Jefferson and those who signed it were on solid ground was that there is not, at least I don't think there is, an equivalent argument for racial discrimination. Now, at the margins, you can find it, for example, you know, there are different proclivities toward diabetes between blacks and whites, but racial discrimination seems inherently irrational. Uh, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but could you find me an equivalent example of rational discrimination than the one you found with, say, women in the armed forces between people of different races. I, I, I can't see one. I think there are cases where racial profiling makes sense if 
you know, law enforcement have, you know, a certain kind of contextualized information about a community and who the committers of a, a certain crime are likely to be. But I recognize the danger of codifying distinctions along these lines. And definitely at the time of the founders, breaking those down and eroding them was was correct. But I do worry about thinking about this as like a, a pure principle, like a universally applicable principle. I mean, I'm coming at this from the from a philosopher's angle. So that's why my mind would immediately go to possible counterexamples, not because I don't think it's a, a very good generalization that ha- has moral significance. But when I try to think of it as like an exceptionless principle that you shouldn't treat people differently based on immutable characteristics, I think, ah, I'm not sure I can go all the way with that. Yeah, and they didn't go all the way with it. And that's one of the great criticisms that's leveled at them, I think, both fairly and unfairly. As I say, if you look at, for example, the treatment of women, it would never have occurred to them, or at least the vast majority of them. Perhaps it occurred to Abigail Adams, but it would never have occurred to them that by saying all men are created equal, they were implying that women could vote. And likewise, unfortunately... Even after the 14th Amendment is passed in 1868, on the back of the 1866 Civil Rights Act, on the back of the 1866 Freedmen's Bureau Act, there's no doubt as to the intentions of the radical Republicans in the aftermath of the Civil War. But even then, it didn't occur to the vast majority of them that segregation was unconstitutional uh, in schooling or otherwise. So I don't worry too much about the claim that the core declaration within the declaration is oversweeping. I, I think, if anything, it was it was narrowly tailored. So I want to move on and, and conclude with um, with with something different with, on a different topic. We already mentioned like the left's sort of cynicism toward American identity and American history. And we could both go on for a very long time about that. But I wanted to ask you about right-wing cynicism and anti-Americanism, because I feel like I've been seeing more and more of this sort of pop up. Like I'm hearing more and more expressions of this, of people on the right declaring the United States to be a failure, liberalism to be a failure, the secular society to be a failure, racial blindness to be a failure, because look look at where those things have gotten us. They've gotten us to a place where the left is dominating our institutions. And I'm detecting a note of to hell with everything, to hell with everything, let's burn it down and start over again, that I used to associate with the far left, but now I associate with the far left and the far right. So I just have kind of expected that kind of note to come from the left, but I'm hearing it more and more from the right, and I wanted to get your reaction to that. Well, I think you're right, and I I think it is much more pronounced on the right now than it has been for a while. I was given pause on this question earlier this week when I read a letter that Russell Kirk wrote to William F. Buckley Jr. when William F. Buckley Jr. tried to solicit Kirk's work for National Review. 
And Kirk essentially says to Buckley, we've lost. America has failed. The communists are going to win. There is nothing to preserve. He doesn't use the phrase, what is conservatism conserved, which is a favorite inquiry on the populist right. But he essentially asks the question. And it put me in mind of others who are well regarded on the right who thought that society had committed suicide. Tolkien, evil in war. So I do think there has been this strain on the right, and sometimes it bubbled up to the surface with, say, Pat Buchanan for, for quite a long time. But I do think it is more pronounced now. And what I think it shows that was perhaps papered over for a while is that there is a difference between conservatism in its paleo form and classical liberalism. I am, as your listeners will probably have noticed, <laughs> a small l liberal. I, I call myself a conservative because I wish to conserve liberalism because in my political opinions, I tend more conservative. But I am nevertheless a liberal on speech, on pluralism, on religious toleration, and on a broadly optimistic view of markets, which I think do cause some destruction, but increase living standards and give people opportunities they wouldn't otherwise have had. I am a liberal. But not everyone who is broadly on my side or who broadly votes the way that I do is. And not everyone has been. And at the moment, we have seen that populist conservatism rise up. And I think there's a real fight at the moment between the small L liberals and the populist conservatives in much the same way as there is a fight between the small L liberals and the progressives who are not liberal. Uh, the liberals on the left, unfortunately, while they exist, are somewhat muted and cowed by the progressives. So what you're spotting is there. It's real. Uh, I don't know whether or not it's going to stick around. I think that some of the cause of this development is a perception that the right, broadly construed, is losing. And I wonder if we were to get a period in which conservative policy at the national level uh, was advanced, if we were to get a period of economic growth and more social harmony, I wonder if, as has happened many times before, that uh, grumbly conservatism would be tamped down. But I don't know. Perhaps it is here to stay. What you're seeing, though, is real.
it's hard to know how much of, of this is, is local. Like I think a certain amount of it had to do with Obergefell because that was an instant that we hadn't seen in a long time where suddenly the lines moved right, dramatic, right. cultural lines, the political lines. And it was bad for, even that you agree with the decision. And I think given the, the economic and social changes that had already been made in the 20th century, something like that was, was inevitable at a certain point. Um, so it really was not as rapid as it appeared, but it, it gave the illusion that what appeared to be stable political lines could rapidly be advanced. And it sort of emboldened the left to think, well, we can just yeah. settle it on abortion, on immigration, on gun rights, on, on whatever. And it freaked out the right because they thought, oh my God, you know, it's like Khrushchev saying, you know, we will bury you, you know, when that was a bluff. I think the right got frightened by a similar kind of bluff. I think that's part of what's going on here. Well, and they should have been frightened. I am in favor of gay marriage, and I would have no problem if every state chose to adopt gay marriage. But I was absolutely appalled by Obergefell because it was a lie. There's no constitutional provision that can be construed under its original public meaning to mandate gay marriage in all 50 states and at the federal level. This is a lie. This is a falsehood. And I think the combination of the sweeping change you just described and the fact that it was built on sand, that there is nothing to that decision correctly freaked out people. And I think that's a great point. That that probably was the moment uh, that shifted our politics. And one of the moments that led to the election of Donald Trump. So I have to say, uh, I'm not one of these, let's have national divorce, let's give up on classical liberalism kind of people on the right. But I think it is, you know, people who are who would describe themselves as conservatives, as I do, would have a tendency to have a doom and gloom perspective. And so maybe that's coloring my my vision here somewhat. But I I just have this fear that I was born into this great country to, to see the, its decline and the, the dissolution of its identity and the fragmentation of its politics along cultural lines, along racial lines, on, you know, whatever other lines. And I don't want to be fatalistic about it, but I really have that fear. And I'm reminded of a, a quotation from another British immigrant to the U.S., Patrick Allett, who was a history professor at Emory University. He had a book on teaching that had called I'm the Teacher, You're the Student, that had a couple of passages that I thought were really interesting. And one of them was that he said that when he first came to America, I think this would have been in the 70s or the 80s, there was just this optimism and this this can-do sort of attitude. But by the time he's writing this book, this is the late 2000s, it had sort of been drained out of Americans and it's, it's just sort of been beaten out of them. And he just doesn't see the same kind of character that he used to see. And then he notes alongside this, the, the change in the way history was was taught and historical research was done. And, and he says that he's sort of disenchanted with, to a degree with contemporary history because he, he calls it forensic. It's just about going back and detailing our our sins and, and putting it forward in this dreary way. 
And, you know, I, I, you, your journey to becoming an American started pretty, you know, not too many years before he had written that. And yet you still uh, seem to detect something positive and you don't think it's, it's all is lost or anything like that. I share your worry. I make the same joke. I say, did I move to America to watch its decline and fall? But I don't know. I don't think it's late enough in the day to despair. And I also sense, and perhaps this is just relative to Britain or to the rest of the world, so much of the dynamism and optimism that you just described. I won't overstate the case. I had a degree from Oxford. But when I moved to the United States, I had negative money. I had no credit rating. You can't transfer credit rating from one country to another. And I found open door after open door and open mind after open mind. And everything I have is thanks to the American system and the American people. And I still meet huge numbers of immigrants who say the same. And these people aren't writing for National Review or teaching at a university. They're landscapers. They work in a sandwich shop. I live in North Florida, full of immigrants. And they are worried about some of the same things you and I are, but they still see this as paradise. So I'm not saying that that is an argument against there having been a shift between the 80s and the 2000s. I'm sure that is true. I sense it myself and it worries me. But the important question in life is always as opposed to what? And in my case, even a good, free, safe country such as Britain, there's just no choice. This place is magnificent and aspirational. And I suppose the reason that I get up in the morning and, and fight for it is that I want it to be even more so. I want it to stay that way. Uh, I'd, lo I'd love to return to the cultural norms you described uh, from the 1980s. But this, this notion, to go back to our previous topic, that is peddled often on the populist right and certainly on the left, that the whole thing is a lie and all the good things about America have disappeared. I just don't believe that's true at all. Charlie, thank you so much for your time. Do you have anything else to add? No, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Pleasure is all mine.